Morning, ANC family and friends. Thank you, Mark, Lamar. Music is always great around here. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to this space that we've come to enjoy together. With Lent and Easter and Pentecost behind us now, we're in what Christ, the Christian calendar calls ordinary time, which is such an exciting time, sounds like, right? I mean, ordinary. So here we go. Uh, to be specific, this is the time of year when we can go anywhere we need to in the scriptures. And you may not feel it, uh, but for now, we won't be harmonizing directly with the themes being preached in pulpits around the globe. One of my favorite things to hear from our folks is as they travel, hear some other pastor or priest from another place in the world speak on the same text. That's not what we're going to be doing for the next little bit, which honestly makes me a little bit sad, but only a little, because we won't be doing our own thing entirely. Uh, we'll be tethered to something. There's a voice I want us to center on now, a specific, prophetic, almost always dismissed voice in the global faith community. Yes, church, I think it's time that uh, we begin to listen to what's happening on the streets, in the margins. It's time to hear the voice of the oppressed uh, right here at home. Today I want to speak specifically to the white people in this audience, which I won't hide the truth from you, it's the majority. Uh, if you're a person of color, my invitation to you today is to rest, just rest. Uh, rest in the moment that you have created with a lifetime of hope and effort and activism and patience, just rest. Uh, we're the ones who need to catch up now. Most of the time I try to speak to all the people in our audience and that's a bit of a task, but today it's the hearts and the minds and the bodies of our white progressive folks that I'm talking to directly. The fear, the shame, the guilt, the heaviness that you have felt these last few weeks, I shared that with you. The need to lament, the impulse to repent and move to action, this is our work right now. Our prophets have been in the streets their whole lives. They've paid dearly for this moment when some of us are only now beginning to wake up, finally. So now is when we listen, which makes preaching strange. How do you listen and speak at the same time? Our friends of color remind us that none of this is actually new. Well, maybe except the cell phones preserving these events for our consumption. Tragically, public lynching has always happened right under our noses in our streets at the hands of a, a violent society determined to protect her exclusive white access to wealth. I wonder if you know, they used to take postcard pictures of lynchings in the South, send them all around the country to family and friends to brag about what we were doing about a society and that, that, that needed to be purified. This only feels new if you're part of the white mainstream. And it's frankly exhausting from my friends of color that I've heard uh, who have suffered in this world that we have built. It's exhausting to have to remind us that this has been the only reality that they have ever known. You know, we say freedom, we say liberty, we say equal justice under the law for all. We tell ourselves that what we've been able to accumulate, what we have amassed for ourselves is well-deserved and hard-earned and merit-based and responsibly acquired, but we struggle to see the system behind that history and how that system sets some up to win and others up to fail. And then things happen. Mythology falls apart all of the sudden, it might feel like, and sometimes all at once in a moment that we realize that our experience of a particular history is very different than the experience of someone who has lived for our entire lives right next to us. 
And what do we do when our narratives get called into question? Do we defend? Do we close our eyes? Do we justify or do we join the protests in the streets with our bodies? Do we rise up? All of these are options available to us now. I know what I hope we do. I hope we find the courage to name what we've done to our communities of color. I hope we listen undefended. I hope we move together to a new kind of collective action that invites all voices to reimagine a better world. Policing, education, economic structures, social theory, these can all be reimagined. These are not poured in dry concrete. We can do that work. We've seen something about ourselves in these moments in our history. What will we do with what we have seen? Early this week, my thoughts turned to Matthew 19. You might consider it a wake-up call to a person of privilege, to a person of power. Let's turn there now. Matthew 19, verse 16 through 22. You'll recognize this uh, as the little subject heading says, the rich young man or the rich young ruler. Let me just read you how that, how that scripture goes. Verse 16, then someone came to him and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, and by life, remember, he doesn't mean heaven. Jesus is talking about life. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones, this rich young ruler? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Verse 19, honor your father and your mother also, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus says to him, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me, in verse 22. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions, or you might say, many possessions possessed him. Now this text, text doesn't speak uh, directly about racism or hate or even evil, not overtly, it tells the story of a man of wealth and privilege who could not accept his own liberation when it was offered freely to him. How do we respond when our motives and our inner narratives are revealed? Remember, this confrontation happened in public. When he pressed Jesus on what commandments to keep, I think he probably already knew the answer that he was thinking of. Jesus begins by listing all of the things not to do, sins he must avoid. No sweat. He didn't kill. He didn't take his neighbor's wife. He didn't take what didn't belong to him. He didn't bear false witness or perjure himself against a brother or a sister. He'd managed to keep his record clean by not doing any of these things. Not bad. He's on his way. This is where institutional religion begins, is it not? But it can't be where true faith ends. Avoiding doing wrong things will never get us all the way where we need to be. Verse 19, Jesus lists to additional challenges to the law. He says, honor your parents and love your neighbor. Beyond prohibitions, Jesus moves to action items. So far, so good. Seems manageable. This guy had it made. This is how we think, isn't it? If we can avoid doing damage, then we're all good. But then Jesus attached to the commandment about loving our neighbor these two obnoxious little words, as yourself. Well, dang. If you're wondering what that means exactly, Jesus will make it clear in time. 
to love one another as yourself will mean shifting resources to cover their needs. True faith and devotion are never just avoiding doing damage. Jesus will always direct us to action. You know this, to real loving, to actual equality. But never underestimate the resilience of religious people. They bounce back like weeble wobbles. Google that, millennials. We did have toys in the 70s. They bounce back. Obnoxiously religious people always come ready with an answer for their religious bona fides, especially when others are listening, definitely when the cameras are rolling. And so our boy takes the bait, does he not? And he claims, I have done all of this. I'm golden. Failing to sense the shift of the wind in verse 19, you see, dear friends, Jesus' people are people of action, known by sacrificial love, people who don't get stuck in contemplation, but move to transformation, sometimes even revolution. James the Apostle said it two millennia ago like this. He said, faith without works is dead. Jeff Sanchez said it in this space last week, only last week, that faith has always been more than an individual affair. You know this, church. We know this. It's not enough to not do the things that condemn us. We either act or, we, or our love is an illusion. Our faith is pure mythology. Our obedience is empty and hollow if it doesn't transform the actual world where bodies live and breathe. This rich young ruler just had his inner narrative questioned in the public arena, and he went home unable to connect the dots. This would not be his big moment. His breakthrough would have to wait for another day this crowd would not see his reparation, his repayment, his confession, his action. Instead, they would watch him walk away, muttering under his breath the list of things he didn't do. Oh, church, can you see the connection? Have we told ourselves I've never hated anyone of color? I'm not a racist. I'm parent parenting a black child. Can you hear how empty those words must sound to people who have suffered under the social construct of race all these years? A construct that I have to add was created entirely to justify white fear and hatred. I don't think we can distill from this story a moral imperative that all wealthy people must sell all their possessions to join Jesus. What we can say is that religious duty without action does not equal transformation. And as hopeful as I am that our country might be waking up to truth finally, my biggest fear right now is that our limitation of attention span will get the better of us and we'll be on to other things soon enough. You say, no way, preacher, I'm a true progressive. I know, so am I. And we progressives have made remarkably unreliable allies to people of color in America. We have been inconsistent and inattentive, impatient, unwilling to exist outside the center we've created for ourselves. This rich young ruler missed out. He was unable to move to action. This was his wake-up call, but he couldn't hear it. He was too possessed by his possessions, by the privilege that he couldn't release. He couldn't hear that what Jesus was proposing was his own freedom, his own liberation. This is a story about a powerful man who couldn't. Let's add to it the story about a boy who could. There's another moment preserved in our text a text that we actually take seriously, by the way, not one we hold up like some ridiculous prop for a photo op in front of a church we exploit in order to dog whistle to the millions of white nationalists hiding within the ranks of the evangelical faith communities. No, no, we take this text seriously. There's a moment preserved for us, actually in all four Gospels, known as the feeding of the X by 1,000. What, no, that's not how it's actually titled. But, but what was it? Was it 4,000 or 5,000? My guess was that it was more like 10,000. Why? 
Well, we call patriarchy by its name around here. The gospel writers didn't count women and children in this number. We do mostly because we actually listen to the teacher that's teaching in this text. But that's not the point I want to make here. I love when we can isolate and analyze the precise moment when awareness occurs. That's what I think this little story offers us. Educators call these moments a light bulb going off. Preachers might notice them as confession. If you're in a relationship, they sometimes show up right after a sincere apology, that moment of awareness. They come in many forms. Sometimes after a bystander uses a cell phone to show us what they've been trying to tell us all along. So we have here in this little story a preserved sequence that goes from awareness to action if we can see it. Let's look at how Matthew remembers it, and you'll find this story in the book of Matthew in the chapter 14, verse 13 and forward. Now, when Jesus had heard this, now what he's talking about here in the text is the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, verse 13. When Jesus had heard this, he withdrew from that place in a boat to a desert, deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns, verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages to buy food for themselves. Verse 16, Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, can you imagine the scoff and the smirk? We have nothing here but five loaves and fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he blessed and broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. Verse 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Besides women and children, I know. Patriarchy, I can't scrub it from your text. We can be honest when we see it. It's woven in. It's possible that there were over 10,000 people in attendance that day, but the number of people fed doesn't make this any more of a miracle. I think the real miracle happens in verse 15 when the disciples finally looked up, saw the crowd, had actual physical needs, and so they interrupted Jesus to find a solution. Jesus had already been moved by compassion for these folks. In verse 15, his protégés are finally closing the gap and catching up to his heart. Now, John tells us five loaves and two fish came from, they came from a little boy. Neither Matthew, Luke, nor, nor, nor Mark actually bother with this detail, but I think it matters. I think it's important. When Jesus suggests they feed the crowd without sending them away, the only thing they had handy was a lunch they probably stole from a young child, from a young boy, one of the unnumbered faces in the sea of humanity. And I want you to notice the sequence. They see a need, they report it, Jesus does what heaven always does. He turns and says, what do you have to work with? What do you have handy? So they grab a sack lunch from a child and present it to Jesus, the need meter. Now, I don't want us to stretch this little story too far. This isn't authoritative doctrine or theology or an ancient recipe for miracles, but this is a little sequence. This is a little piece of choreography that shows up everywhere around Jesus, and it's beginning to feel prophetic to me in these perilous times we're living in in America. How will the masses, the disenfranchised, the voiceless, the outsiders, those we have hated, the powerless, how will they get their needs met? How will their hunger be satisfied, be it for bread or for justice? How will resources find their way 
to those in need, when those at the center offer what they have, however meager, when love lifts it to heaven and blesses it, breaks it and blesses it, when heaven breaks it and gives it back to us to redistribute according to need, that's when the breakthrough happens. Remember, the disciples didn't have a lot to work with here. One sack lunch is nowhere near what was needed to feed this crowd, but giving what they had put something miraculous into motion. The rich young ruler missed out. He missed out on his own liberation. But these disciples, led by this small, nameless boy, did something. They did what they could. And change was the result. Last week I mentioned an image that came to my mind. I think that we, and by we I mean white America, need to give up our place in the driver's position of the vehicle. We need to get out from behind the driver's seat. We need to leave the keys in the ignition. We need to get out from behind the wheel. We don't have to erase ourselves or abandon the project altogether. No, no. We get to stay in it, just not in control of what happens next. There's room enough for all of us, as long as we're willing to share the wheel. Which means, church, I don't know what happens next. How could I? It's not up to me. Which honestly is a relief. It's time to hear from the injured party now, from the ones who have suffered from the voices that we have ignored, from the bodies that we have trampled and crushed to the ground, to the ones we have hit between the eyes with non-lethal beanbags. It's time for no more filters, no more self-preservation, no more acting like nothing happened. It's time to listen, and it's time to reckon. We don't have to get this perfectly right. We're going to make mistakes as we reconfigure. How could we not? We've never done this before. I don't know what version of American history you were taught, but what I'm learning from my friends who are people of color right now is that we've never actually experimented with equal justice for all. It's never actually been our reality. So there's grace for us as we make mistakes, as we move into action, collective action together. So while I don't know what steps we should take next, as a white man of privilege, I have an inkling of what they might feel like like the breaking and the multiplying of our gathered resources, like loss and grief as we see our center redistributed, our power and our privilege confronted by love, like the panic of not knowing what comes next, but also like the ultimate freedom from hate and racism and the prison of our own making. Imagine, church, all of us free, Oppressor and oppressed, conqueror and vanquished. Imagine all of us free. Free from hate, discrimination, free from racism, the system we have built. Imagine what inspired ideas about justice and equality might flow even now from young leaders and young hearts and minds now gathered in the streets if we really begin to listen. Finally, let us pray.